Hello, and welcome to Stars, Cells, and God, the show where we discuss new discoveries taking place at the frontiers of science that have theological and philosophical implications, as well as new discoveries that point to the reality of God's existence. My name is Hugh Ross. I'm joined today by Kevin Birdwell. And today we're going to be exploring the topic of, uh, well, uh, Kevin, uh, I think we're going to be talking about the Ice Age cycle. But before we get into the discussion, I want to encourage you to subscribe to our channel, our Reasons to Believe YouTube channel, so that you can be notified of our new weekly videos. You can learn more at reasons.org or by following us on social media at rtv underscore official. Well, Kevin, uh, let's get right to it. Uh, I know you've done, I mean, you're a climatologist. Why don't you give us a little bit about your background? That'll set the stage for the discovery you want to talk about. All right. Well, um, I have uh, worked in the area of Oak Ridge, Tennessee for many years for a, a couple of different employers. Uh, a lot of my work is focused on um, microscale and mesoscale meteorology, but I've also had a an interest in um, paleoclimate, in particularly the last uh, glacial cycle. And as a part of that, I did some uh, PhD work related to tree ring studies and other uh, proxy indicators. But today, what I was going to talk about was rebounding from a deep glacial cycle. So that is, um, you know, basically, why is it that we can get out of a glacial? Because as more and more of the earth becomes more reflective. Um, one would anticipate that the earth would just stay in a glacial cycle and conditions would continue to get colder and worse. So why are we in an ice age cycle rather than a slush ball or an ice ball situation like we had 700 million years ago? Well, I think it has a lot to do with our continental configurations, our ocean currents, and the way our atmospheric circulation works. All right, so what I want to talk about today is rebounding from a deep glacial climate or a rebounding from an ice age. So there are actually a number of factors that we need to understand before I kind of explain why this works. Uh, the first of those I think we're somewhat familiar with, and that is um, orbital variations, uh, eccentricity, obliquity, and precession. So that uh, refers to the roundness of the Earth's orbit, uh, the tilt of the Earth, which varies between about 22.1 and 24.3 degrees, and the precession, which is essentially the wobbling of the Earth's axis over time, which has the effect of changing the seasons. So uh, as eccentricity uh, becomes larger or smaller, it has an effect on controlling precession. So in essence, how intense are the seasons? And all three of these factors are known to impact the ice age cycle. But I think it's important to point out that uh, when obliquity or the tilt of the earth is greater than 23 degrees, essentially there's an opportunity to exit a glacial there. But that isn't the only factor that's needed. When the tilt is less than 23 degrees, in every case that we know of, you have a glacial inception. And we are actually headed downward in our tilt right now. We're at 23.42 degrees. And in something like 3,300 years, we will uh, 
decline below 23 degrees. But I think another important thing to point out as we get into this is it's often assumed that glacial cycles happen in 100,000 year cycles uh, in sync with the eccentricity. And that's uh, been believed to be, have been true since about the uh, mid Pleistocene transition about 800,000 years ago. But that's really uh, not entirely true. We, we need to separate a couple of things out here. And that is most interglacials or warm periods between glacials uh, actually occur on multiples of obliquity cycles. Prior to the mid Pleistocene transition, they occurred roughly every 41,000 years in sync with the obliquity cycle. Since that time, it's been more variable. And that seems to have been because the Earth has gotten cooler. And so what happens is, as you get a warming cycle, uh, when the obliquity uh, becomes favorable, then you don't always get the uh, warming period to reach what we would call interglacial conditions. So sometimes it might go two or three cycles, uh, obliquity cycles, before we get an, a true interglacial period. So you see on this chart here, um, I have the time periods plotted out between the last eight to 10 cycles. And the last one uh, was actually the longest one. It took three obliquity cycles to get us out of the ice age. Uh, it's also important to note that the cycles seem to be shorter at intervals of about 400,000 years, and that's because the major eccentricity cycle is about 400,000 years ago, or I'm sorry, um, 400,000 years ago and, and at present. So in other words, the Earth's orbit is the most round right now. Uh, 200,000 years ago, it was the most elliptical, and when it's more elliptical, uh, then you get shorter glacial cycles, generally speaking. So what you're sharing with us, uh, Kevin, is that it's not just a simple formula involving one factor. There are multiple factors involved, and that explains why our 100,000-year periodicity in the last 800,000 years is roughly approximate. It's not exact. That's correct, and there's other factors involved. So uh, many times when you talk about this issue, uh, people tend to focus on solar radiation in polar regions. So if it gets above a certain level, let's say 65 degrees north latitude, then we expect uh, an interglacial. But again, it's not that simple. It, that is one of the factors, but it is affected by the obliquity cycle and other orbital dynamics. So um, for example, if the uh, polar solar radiation at roughly 65 north gets over about 549 watts per meter squared, then you're almost always going to get an interglacial as long as your tilt is also uh, high enough. But if it's lower than that, then you may or may not get an interglacial depending on some of these other factors. Now, one thing that does occur at a 100,000-year cycle is the uh, global ice volume. So basically what we're finding is when the global ice volume exceeds around 24 to 25%, then we get an unstable situation that leads to a glacial termination. And hopefully I can explain here in the next few minutes why that happens. But you see here on this chart, modern day superimposed against 
uh, the last glacial maximum around 18 to 20,000 years ago, in which the uh, large portions of North America and Europe and Asia were covered by ice sheets. And I want to point out here, as I get into this further, that it's important to understand the atmospheric circulation as well as the oceanic circulation. So this is a highly generalized uh, diagram of how our atmosphere uh, operates. So we have essentially uh, trade winds from the southeast and northeast in the tropical regions that merge near the equator, which causes lift. And, and many clouds and storms often. This is called the intertropical convergent zone. Then in the mid-latitudes, we have the westerlies, which move a lot of our uh, extratropical cyclones around both hemispheres. And then we have the polar easterlies in the polar regions. But as I said, the continents, uh, the oceans, and other factors really modify these patterns. So this is, it's really never quite as simple as what you see here. But it's important to understand this, uh, to understand what is uh, causing the fact that we can actually get out of the glacial cycle. Uh, another thing I wanted to point out here, again, this is a generalized ocean current diagram, but the important thing to see here is that you have these deep water formation zones that are uh, basically in the North Atlantic between Greenland and Europe, and also encircling the Antarctic continent. Those are the places where uh, warm, warm water is pumped to the polar regions. It cools, it sinks due to both temperature and salinity factors. It recirculates throughout the globe. It resurfaces in other parts of the world, such as the Indian Ocean and Pacific Ocean, and then comes back around. This whole circulation pattern can take as long as uh, 2,500 years. And it appears that the reason that we can come out of a glacial has to do with both these oceanic and atmospheric circulation patterns, but, but also how they are organized. You get a much cooler world when you have uh, deep water formation in polar regions as we do today and as we have had for several million years now. Um, but what's essentially very important is that most of the ice sheet mass that forms in an ice age is in the Northern Hemisphere, especially North America, but also Europe. And all of those glaciers are organized and juxtaposed against the North Atlantic Ocean, the same area where we have that deep water formation area. So in a normal uh, circulation pattern like we have today, we have this uh, warm water coming into the Atlantic, not just from the Atlantic, but even from other parts of the, of the hemisphere, other oceans. Um, and that warm water is being transported up to the area of Iceland and eventually there cools off and sinks. And that brings a lot of heat to the polar region to keep it warmer than it otherwise would be. But during an ice age, this uh, pattern, which is called the AMOC circulation, is uh, that stands for Atlantic multi-decadal uh, overturning circulation. Um, 
this pattern is a little weaker during the glacial. It's still there, but over time, the ice sheets continue to build up. I mentioned earlier that there's a 41,000 year cycle uh, caused by the obliquity cycle, but that doesn't actually reset the global ice volume. It takes about 100,000 years for that to happen. And eventually the ice sheets get so large that they start to encroach on the um, ocean boundaries, on the continental ice shelves that are below sea level. And once a large glacier does that, it becomes unstable. And it eventually reaches a point where you have massive ice calving, uh, icebergs, and you could think of it as a flotilla of ice uh, entering the North Atlantic in this case. And because these ice sheets are in that same area where that ocean current is, it has a massive impact on the AMOC when this happens. These are called Heinrich events. There, there have been probably around eight of them in the last 60,000 years. Um, the last two were the ones that essentially ended the last ice age. And because these ice sheets were so large, they essentially brought so much cooling to the North Atlantic, uh, and that's called a stadial condition. But in order for one of these Heinrich events to end an ice age, it has to have the ability to provide enough ice and fresh water to the Atlantic to last more than, say, a few thousand years. And in the case of the one that happened around uh, 17,000 years ago, right after the last glacial maximum, that's essentially what you had. And in that case, the northward moving AMOC bringing the warm water into the North Atlantic basically completely shuts down. And when that happens, you actually get um, cool water going the other direction. So uh, looking at this slide here, this is sort of a vertical cross section of the Atlantic. And this dark blue area here is the area where you get enhanced southward moving cool water kind of at a depth of about one to two kilometers. And basically that has the effect of going back to our atmospheric map here, that has the effect of pushing these uh, trade winds in the Northern hemisphere actually into the Southern hemisphere and this intertropical convergence zone pushes southward in the Southern hemisphere. We even have proxy record evidence that a lot of these subtropical areas in the Southern hemisphere that are normally uh, very dry received much more precipitation during that time because all of these um, atmospheric uh, zones were pushed southward. So these westerlies in the Southern hemisphere were pushed further southward. And what that does is it has the effect of increasing the Atlantic circumpolar current, ocean current, as well as the westerlies here. And the Antarctic is essentially the other ocean heat pump outside of the North Atlantic. So it ends up getting intensified. And as it gets intensified, it eventually pushes warm water back into the North Atlantic. But this process takes a few thousand years. So you have um, essentially a, a period of, you have a period of 
cooling of, of intensive cooling in the in the North Atlantic that even affects the southern hemisphere. Uh, it, it seems kind of counterintuitive because you're getting cooling in the North Atlantic while you're essentially ending the ice age. But because of this Heinrich event where so much ice was lost at the Atlantic, eventually that creates a feedback mechanism that brings warm water back into the Atlantic uh, in uh, say two or 3000 years later and which creates more melting. Now this process actually had to happen twice to end our ice age because there was so much ice in this last ice age well above the 25% or so threshold. And you know this process um, will happen again uh, if, if things are left the way they are. We're, we're probably, um, as I said, probably in the ballpark of uh, 3,300 years uh, to reaching the point where the tilt of the earth drops below 23 degrees. There is a several thousand year time delay usually beyond that. But these are some of the factors here that reverse the process. So after you get warming, then you go back into another ice age eventually. Um, I think an important thing to uh, realize though is the more you, the colder the glacial gets, the more this, this effect happens. So a colder glacial actually results in a warmer interglacial. Now, I think that, that brings up an interesting point because you have pointed out in a few of your books that the particular interglacial warm period that we're in seems to be not as warm as it might otherwise be. And so that's, that's an interesting point too. If you, you know, look at the Eemian, which is the last interglacial period about 120,000 years ago, it was warmer than the present interglacial. So really we should have a, a somewhat warmer interglacial, but in general, that is, that is the pattern that the colder the ice age, the warmer the interglacial that follows. And that seems to, pro that probably is helping the earth uh, not get any colder because if you look at the overall temperature decline, say for the last 3 million years, uh, you see that it was dropping. And so before the mid Pleistocene transition, you had um, an interglacial essentially every obliquity cycle, every 41,000 years. But then once we drop below a certain overall temperature, some of the obliquity cycles were not bringing about interglacials anymore. Uh, and so that's why we now skip two or three uh, cycles to get there. But if it wasn't for the fact that we have this um, ocean current circulation and the fact that all of these glaciers that form, or most of them, uh, occur around an area where they're directly affected by the North Atlantic currents, then we can actually come out of an ice age. I mean, I can't really find, I've looked back at some of the past continental configurations and I can't really find a situation, say going back, you know, 30 million years, 60 million years and so on, where, where this would have been the case. Of course, we didn't have any ice ages uh, prior to about two and a half million years ago. Until, unless you go very far back. Right, right. So what you're basically sharing with us here is just how complex the Ice Age cycle is. I mean, often people read a couple of papers and assume, hey, it's just one or two factors. It's actually more than 10, a dozen factors that are involved. 
And I like the fact that you're pointing out how the way the continents are sized and oriented and shaped uh, plays a crucial role in us being able to come out of an ice age. And uh, Kevin, what are your thoughts about the next ice age? I mean, it's interesting. We look at, say, the past eight ice ages, each successive one seems to be a little more severe. Is that pattern going to continue or not? Well, some of that seems to be tied to the eccentricity cycle and how it enhances the effects of precession. So because right uh, at this moment, the uh, eccentricity of the Earth's orbit is actually very low, uh, that, in other words, what I'm saying is when you have low eccentricity, you actually get more severe glacials. Right, right. And so 200,000 years ago, the eccentricity was greater the glacier, glacier was not as severe, and it was also not as long-lasting. So going by that, we would probably say the next ice age might not be quite as severe as this one, although still relatively severe. Um, as I said, we're going to drop below uh, 23 degrees tilt in about 3,300 years. Then you could probably add several thousand years delay. Just, uh, it's kind of the same effect as what you see with seasons, you know, you have peak solar radiation in June in the Northern Hemisphere, but you get your warmest temperatures a month later. So uh, the same sort of thing happens with ice age cycles. So we could still be, you know, 5,000 or more years away from glacial inception, but it seems pretty likely it will happen. There has never been a time when the Earth's tilt has dropped below 23 degrees that a glacial inception did not follow. Yeah, at least for the last 3 million years. Yes. Yeah. So uh, what does this shit tell us about how the Earth has been designed? I mean, we critically depend on an Ice Age cycle. And like you're talking about rebounding from an Ice Age cycle, I find it interesting that when the ice does begin to melt, it melts very rapidly, and that causes volcanic eruptions all over the world. And that actually fertilizes all of our agricultural plains. So and we get a lot of benefits from this Ice Age cycle. But I think that just enhances the fine-tuning argument. Not only does our planet have to be fine-tuned in terms of the shape, sizes, and orientations of the continents and the ocean currents and the atmospheric weather patterns, uh, but we see that there needs to be additional fine-tuning in order that we humans get the maximum benefit from living in an ice age cycle. Any thoughts? Well, I think just to summarize, <clears throat> we need, it's important that we have both the deep water formation area in the North Atlantic <clears throat> surrounded by where the ice sheets form. Much of that warm water that comes in the North Atlantic comes from other parts of the world, not just the Atlantic, even in even the Southern hemisphere. It's also important that you have Antarctica with that ocean pump there, because that's a crucial part of, of getting us out of the ice age cycle. You mentioned the volcanoes. Although I would say CO2 increase at the end of an ice age is probably more of a secondary factor, uh, but still an important one. About half of the CO2 increase that occurs at the end of an ice age actually comes from those volcanoes. Um, and maybe the CO2, depending on how you looked at, at um, the, there's, there's debate on it, but 
somewhere between probably one sixth and one third of the warming is kind of an enhancement from the CO2. Right, right. And uh, we do need that CO2 because during the last ice age, it got low enough to be able to severely limit uh, photosynthetic activity. Yes, and even that ties into it in the sense that you had fewer plants and you know maybe less than half of the amount of vegetation that we have today. And that means that you had significantly increased dust levels, especially in the Northern hemisphere, possibly five to 10 times as much in the mid and high latitudes of the Northern hemisphere. That dust actually cools uh, the glacial even another degree Celsius over what it might otherwise be, which makes the glacial even more intense and then essentially uh, puts in this springback mechanism to bring us out of the glacial. Yeah, and what, what is your prognosis for the next ice age in terms of that dust and the CO2? Well, I, I would be, uh, I mean, the dust, the dust happens because you, you have lower uh, vegetation levels and due to lower carbon dioxide levels, and you also have exposed continental shelves due to lower sea level. Um, the CO2, you know, obviously we have higher CO2 levels today than we've had in a long time, but I see that more as probably a centennial scale issue, uh, whereas this ice age uh, cycle is more of a millennial scale or greater issue. So even though we have these high CO2 levels today, it's it seems pretty unlikely to me that that's going to have much impact on the next glacial inception in the long term. So you're basically saying CO2 levels are likely to drop as low as they did during the last glacial? Well, it's interesting too that during the last glacial inception, after about 120,000 years ago, the ice sheets actually started expanding for five to 10,000 years before the CO2 actually started dropping. Now, how that uh, works in our current climate, it's a little hard to say, but that's basically how it, how it uh, worked in the last glacial cycle. So any additional thoughts on uh, the fine tuning argument we can develop from this? Well, I just uh, would say that I think this is just another amazing thing that about the design of our earth. And I, I really uh, just kind of, it's one of those things I just happened to cross, you know, as I was doing my normal science. Um, and I, and I realized, hey, this is a really neat, neat thing. It's almost like we've got this uh, springboard uh, situation where, where we, we pull the temperature too clo close on the earth and the earth is designed to pull it back in the other direction. Well, I find it interesting, Kevin, that, uh, you know, Greenland wasn't always in the position it is today. Uh, you go back 60,000 years and, uh, you know, it's situated uh, down where Newfoundland is and it moved into just the right position. And likewise, Iceland plays a role in ensuring that uh, we get these ocean currents optimized so that what you're saying is we can actually come out of an ice age fairly quickly and uh, develop a, a warm interglacial that's really beneficial for global human civilization. Yes, and I'm sure there are probably more uh, design parameters like this out there that we haven't found yet. And I don't think there's ever been a period in Earth's history 
where we've seen the northern continents oriented in such a way uh, to make these ocean currents as efficient as they are. Is that correct? Absolutely. Uh, you, you need you need the currents being forced in a north-south direction so that heat is being transported away from the equatorial region. You know, for example, 80 million years ago in the, in the Cretaceous period or even before, uh, you had a lot of open seaways in the equatorial region so that because of these um, uh, global wind patterns I was mentioning earlier, you essentially keep all the heat in the equatorial region. And so the earth gets a lot hotter than it is today. And it's only really in the last 30 or 40 million years that we've had a continental configuration that more or less forced the uh, ocean currents to go more north and south and push warm water toward the polar regions where it can more easily escape to space. Uh, because in those regions, you have fewer greenhouse gases, the temperature is cooler, it's easier for the heat to radiate to space. Uh, but even as recently as 4 million years ago, you still had uh, the Panamanian Seaway open just a bit. Right, and, right. and that was somewhat less ideal than what we have now. What you're referring to there is the fact that North and South America were not connected, and you get have ocean currents flowing between the Pacific and the Atlantic in between North and South America? Well, I know, for example, that uh, when that seaway was still open, I mean, you wouldn't think it would make that much of a difference, but I know that, uh, say, four or five million years ago, my er my area where I live in Tennessee was warmer by several degrees C because of that, and the climate was similar to what Florida would be like today. I want to talk a little, too, about the role of Antarctica. I mean, the fact is that we now have a situation where you got Antarctica, the South Pole, totally surrounded by wide open ocean water. And this allows what you were suggesting earlier, how it can act as a pump uh, to put more water up into the North Atlantic. Yes, those uh, that allows the westerlies in the Southern Hemisphere, uh, the mid-latitude westerlies to be much stronger. That increases the ocean current as well. Uh, the westerlies in the northern hemisphere are not anywhere nearly as strong as those in the southern, and that's because the continents are in the way. But in the southern hemisphere, there's very little landmass in the way. All right. Well, this has really been good, Kevin. And I want to alert all of our uh, viewers here uh, that uh, Kevin Birdwell uh, is a climatologist, and he's written several articles for us. Uh, you can get them at reasons.org. You can uh, search under uh, uh, Kevin Birdwell or just Birdwell. Those articles will pop up. And uh, and then I've got a book out called Weathering Climate Change, where I get into a lot of these issues. And I want to thank you today for joining us in Stars, Cells, and God. And you can join the discussion in the comments below. I know this is a topic a lot of people are talking about. I encourage you to uh, use Kevin's articles as a way to get conversation going with your friends and associates that are concerned about uh, global warming, uh, climate change, the ice age cycle, wondering when the next ice age is gonna come, what about the last ice age? Uh, so take advantage of that. It's a great way to get conversations going uh, that can lead to you sharing your faith in Jesus Christ. Remember to like this video and to subscribe for more content. New episodes of Stars, Cells, and God release each Thursday and are available here on YouTube and on your favorite podcast app. Be sure to share this video with a friend. And remember, the more we learn about science, 
the more reasons we have to believe in Jesus Christ as creator, Lord, and Savior, and the complete inerrancy of God's holy book, the Bible. So thank you, Kevin, for joining us, and thank all of you for uh, you. watching with us. And again, uh, take advantage of the comments section that are associated uh, with this uh, video.